Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 44, Bijan Chorobende, part two. In this part, we uh, continue our conversational riffing and freestyling in a surprisingly thematic fashion. Um, I was kind of surprised in re-listening to the first part, how much it kind of hangs together. Shit talking all. There's something uh, guiding it. And that's what I dig. It's just like jamming. When you plug in and you don't know what you're going to play and you just start playing and something happens. So that's I've been digging that. I like Sometimes I get done listening to those things and I'm like, what the hell just happened? But I go back and listen to them again. And it's cool. So yeah, it's, uh, it's two this week. And uh, I'm accomplishing quite a bit. And I... In the midst of accomplishing quite a bit, I got jammed up for two hours in Hanover County today, sitting in the Hanover Courthouse, preparing to present my fix-it for my fix-it ticket because I got pulled over for a uh, expired registration and a busted taillight in Hanover, and those motherfuckers are out for blood out there. Because even when you go in there and say, look, I fixed it all, they still want $69 for what the judge called production costs. And before we could even get to that, I had to sit through an hour and a half of uh, legal bullshit. And like I had to go last because they did it in order of the state trooper who had the most uh, people there. And of course, the guy that pulled me over had like 20 people because he's some kind of overzealous asswipe. And his... Uh, one of the people that he pulled over for the same reason he pulled me over, which is the expired registration, said, I'd like to compliment the state trooper on his eyesight because it's pretty amazing at 60 miles an hour he was able to spot my, that little square of paper on my license plate. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing blood money these people are trying to get out of you for something so simple. But as the judge said when we were done, stay compliant. Don't step out of line. It's going to cost you. Don't forget, driving is a privilege, as is your membership in this society. And I think that's what I'm appreciative of as I am standing there is like, you know, I'm in Hanover County, and that's the kind of place I think that not that long ago, if a good old boy cop and a good old boy judge wanted to fuck you up, they could fuck you up, and there wasn't much stopping them. You know, walk around the car and bust your taillights and trump shit up just to have their uh you know satisfy whatever narrow-minded vendetta they might have or whatever egotistical vendetta whatever way they needed to swing their cock at the time you know i could see myself sitting in that courtroom and i actually i think i have to count myself lucky that it's not quite that bad for anybody totally right now i guess it is somewhere and you know lucky lucky for me nobody really listens to these so nobody's going to disagree with me on that but you know, it is better. I think we have had a civil rights movement and and not just for you know, people normally associated with civil rights, but with, you know, everybody, that, the human rights. I mean, you can't just pull this shit. And, and it, I mean, plenty of times this kind of shit was pulled in the American legal system. And I guess it, what, what the fuck am I saying? I mean, it's still going on all the time. And I suppose I just, uh, it doesn't happen to me that much, right? Because I'm a white boy. I get that white privilege going on and maybe if I didn't but it I don't know it sure felt to me when like that state trooper pulled me over that uh he just didn't like my face 
as he said, in wise blood. And that's why he gave me three motherfucking tickets that day. But uh, I don't know, man. I mean, look, I, I'm at that age where I'm appreciating the fact that we do have a basic framework to rein in individual freedom because most individual freedom, <clears throat> well, a lot of people's idea of individual freedom is doing whatever the fuck they want. And few people realize that there's very little you can do that doesn't affect somebody else. And since people aren't going to be mindful enough about what they do um, affecting other people, they need to be kept in line by laws, unfortunately. And uh, I don't know, that's, I guess, a, a lot of stuff that Bijan and I were talking about is, you know, these ideas of anarchy and control. And are you moving towards a belief system based on being for something? Actually, you know, whether it's a, a political ideology, a social kind of thing, a pop culture thing, or, or a spiritual thing, is it based on growth? Is it based on positivity? Is it based on building? Is it based on constructing? Or is it all just narrow-minded, chicken shit, ego-based fear and insecurity that's just got you to line up with the other people who are similarly so and call them your tribe? Because at the end of that last one, which I think gets cut off, we're saying there's there hasn't hasn't been a concentrated group of people for you know many thousands of years. It was the same group of people. It's been mixing it up and crossing bloodlines and, and genetic mutation. All kinds of shit's been going on for a long fucking time to make all these varieties of humans that we have, varieties of Homo sapien that are kicking around. And early, early, early on when there was just a group of people living in Africa, like a, a relatively knowable amount of people, something must have happened that they decided they didn't agree and some of them had to go. And it's been going like that ever since. And I think we got to figure out how to close that loop, you know, because there's only one earth we got. And, um, you know, we need to simplify it. It is simple. We all basically need the same things. We're not that different from each other. That's why these archetypes we're getting ready to talk about satisfy everyone. And that's why rock and roll satisfies everybody. And different kinds of music satisfy different groups of people. We're basically the same. And the ways that we are different are fun, not fucked up. Um, yeah. So let's uh, let's roll back on into the conversation. That's something interesting you mentioned too about storytelling to bring it back to comics. And that's like fundamentally what comics are, and and that's the and the way that the story is told changes the perception of, based on you know the the different way that it ends up getting digested. And I think that's fascinating from especially when you already have you have a writer or you already have a story that you're doing an adaptation of mm-hmm. because it really puts you in the in the you know, that long tradition of people, you know, telling stories around the campfire and the cave or, you know, wherever, where you're telling somebody else's story, but it's how you tell it mm-hmm. that uh, makes it your own yeah. for, the, for the for the comic artist when, when they are doing it for the writer. When you're both the writer and the artist, you know, it's a little bit of a different dynamic. It's kind of right, like Joseph yeah. Campbell's thing. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many archetypical kinds of stories, and they're basically told over and over again with different set dressing, you know, different outfits or different time and place. But the ultimate drama that unfolds is pretty much the same over and over again, especially when you're talking about the hero's journey 
You know, that you got this guy, he's from humble origins. He goes out and, and, and acquires arcane knowledge and brings it back to benefit the community from which he sprung, you know, being one of the archetypes. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people bring those relationships to contemporary myths. You know, I remember um, the power myth, which Joseph Campbell was on, what was it, Lucas Ranch? And he talks a With lot. Bill of, Moyers, yeah. Yeah, he talks a lot about how... Um, Star Wars was a contemporary myth, and you think about you know how they're in the trash compactor, and that's essentially Joan and the whale, right? The you belly know, the same, of the beast, it's right? The same dynamic, or with comics, you know, Superman is essentially Moses, you mm-hmm. know, in the basket down the river, but in this right. case, it's a spaceship, it's spaceship this right. took planet Earth, and and he's the one who's going to save the people. Right? Is that why they they keep emphasizing in the movies so much of him going to the Fortress of Solitude and receiving? Uh, the word from like whether it's the old Richard Donner ones. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a burning Brand. bush, right? Right, right. He's going there to get the commandments, <laughs> but there are these funny little crystals that are green <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, I mean these. But I, I like as you know, when you're a writer and you're creating stories, you start to, at first you're like, and and I kind of was thinking about this when you're talking about people going to divinity school. I mean, I went into college uh, to be an English major because um, I wanted to write, and I wanted to write my own stories. I wanted to write my own books, and I read so many books. and there are, uh, Most of them are up there on the shelf that I was like, well, everybody already said everything. you know. They, all of these points, all these things that I think are even revolutionary ideas about um, you know, human culture in 1990, that's in uh, Maul Flanders. You know, like the first book, <laughs> you know, first novel or whatever, or, or you know, Joseph and is it Joseph Andrews? I I can't remember, but I mean, these stories have been told many times, you know, and and it's at first dawning. You're just like, what's the point? Like, why, um, why bother? You know, it's all been done before. And then as you go further along, you go, no, that's awesome that there's actually this template that I can then put my style on. That I can, I can, you know, basically put my spin on it, put my little, my little imprint on it. Because it, no matter how hard you tried, you couldn't do it exactly like anybody else has done it, even if it has been done before. So you just sort of embrace the part where you're, it's sort of the chaos of who you are operating on the fixed template of this existing myth or story that is what it's all about, you know. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, may, it makes sense. I'm just digesting it all. I'm thinking about how I'd respond. But that is I interesting. I thought when you were talking about comic books, you were going to talk about what's great about them is that they're simple, you know, well, in a lot of ways. Well, that's, I mean, that's that's actually something that did come into my mind when you were talking about it is that, you know, they might, those stories might have been told, but people aren't necessarily reading those texts. Yeah. And so, you know, they might go see a film or read a comic, or uh, a short story, or um, listen to a storyteller that conveys the same message, but perhaps not as a not as complex or without as much of a time investment as reading um, those those classic novels. So maybe you don't read the story of Moses, but you're going to read a Superman comic. I guess right. I don't relate you know? to the the slavery of, of the Jews in Egypt as much as I relate to this guy who kind of is raised extremely, um, he, it, it's not even his culture and he's raised to totally believe in the values of middle American farmers. And they, they come to define what happens with his power later on. I mean, I think that's really kind of an amazing story. And I think like the, the, the cool thing about that myth is it's like, 
it's a real nate you know nurture versus nature kind of um dichotomy that so superman's nature is he's infinitely sort of powerful and could really just destroy and become this you know demigod but because he was nurtured by people who believe in humility and service and compassion and all of this stuff all that power uh, he he is controlled by the way that he was raised like these are not the values that come from krypton actually these are the values that come from mom pa kent yeah you know? yeah exactly and that decides what he does with his power are these the values of these two people you know who took him in and raised him as if they were his own and that's a very interesting myth and i don't know if we have if that story um if if that's not a new myth in some respects i mean the some of the aspects of it are, are like moses but there's this different direction with it that what do you do with all that power you know yeah and the, and the same thing is true for a lot of those you know those hero those hero stories you know there's a reason why we empathize with the characters because they are there's elements of them that people can directly relate to you know such as you know spider-man one of the reasons i'm assuming that it was so uh, popular was that he was you know the age of a lot of right. the people that were that were reading those texts and so you have this high school kid that's given you know powers he makes a, a major mistake and that kind of that that culture shock to what what his powers are really capable of doing and what he can do causes him to become the hero but at the same time he's still socially and uh, mentally juvenile to the point where he creates a lot of his own enemies, right? You know, by accident. And uh, there's something interesting there too. I think that's you know, in the way that they've explored the pathos of Batman, they haven't really explored the pathos of Peter Parker. The surface pathos of him is that he's just sort of like misunderstood and is kind of a loser, and nobody understands that he's really this great guy. And the reason he appears to be irresponsible is because he's constantly doing nice things for other people you know he's constantly giving till it hurts you know he's but the real pathos of him and the real neurotic thing like where he's actually the pathological is that he is so afraid of making the wrong choice that he cannot resist every opportunity that he might have to like save somebody because he's he's basically afraid that through inaction something fucked up is going to happen so he's not even necessarily motivated by any higher calling he's just like scared that uncle ben's gonna die again you know that's interesting i never really <laughs> thought about that but then but then he inevitably still creates these people and that's what that's why i think some interesting about some of the backstories of some of those characters like you have sandman he's stealing because he wants to make enough money to help pay for you know the medical bills for his daughter that doesn't is that have, is that true in the comic books i know it is in the movie but i don't remember that from I, I <laughs> to be honest, I'm not that familiar thug, with like, the comic. Yeah. I'm probably the worst person. To, the reason I actually got into comics again when I first got into comics, it was actually uh that was when Image was out. Uh, Image just started. Uh, you know, I was reading comics like Spawn and The Mask and Wildcats, and these comics were for me. They made me feel like a grown up kid. I was in maybe sixth grade, middle school. My parents didn't really know that I was reading comics that were that excessively violent. And it made me feel like, oh, you know, I get, I got this re rated R material. I'm a big mm -hmm. boy now, and um, that started to started to lose interest in that, and got back into him because of people like uh, Chris Ware, where he was doing stuff that 
looked like a lot of the graphic design work I was doing that I was getting interested in. And um, that that kind of turned me on to indie comics, which I've spent, you know, which which has appealed to me ever since. I'm more interested in stuff that doesn't really cater to the isn't really part of that superhero genre. But there are, you know, there are some, you know, every now and again, I do have a lot of friends that are into it. They'll show they'll throw me a comic that I'm kind of interested in. Like right now, what's really big is the the new Miss Marvel uh, series. The first issue came out, I believe, this month. And she's supposed to have a Muslim background, and her family's Muslim, and huh. and the fact that she's female and she has this religious belief that's not uh, archetypal in the in that world. And supposedly it's written really well. I can't get my hands on a comic because every time I go to Velocity Comics, they're sold out. They're sold out, wow. and he's and he's ordered it a couple times, and they keep selling out, both because of the uh, the the new factor, but also because it's just apparently a really well executed comic. Mm. It's it, it's I think the superhero thing and you know it's we've got a little thread going about power and, and corruption and I think a lot of although they originally were very jingoistic you know American superhero comics were very jingoistic and there was a very clear line of right and wrong um, what we have gradually found ourselves exploring is you know what happens with power and what happens when a person is you know there's you know, there's kind of two kinds of sick obsessive, you know, there's the sick obsessive like Norman Osborn, who um, really he's also been fucked over. I mean, the guy's kind of a victim in the situation and he and he finds himself desperate and he tries to do something, uh, you know, to take care of his own and, and look out for his own. But he makes totally the wrong choice on how to apply himself. And he winds up this, you know, tragic evil character and the good guys are on some other level of uh pathos which they are being they're really trying to be restrained they have just as much power and this really is the story of what to do with american power you know it's like uh, you know a couple hundred years worth of pathology about first we feel like we have a mandate like we're really the good kids we're the we have democracy you know we're really like there's no doubt about it the prop we've bought into the propaganda that we're good people but gradually more and more the information is undeniable that we've behaved just as bad as anybody else you know we've done just as much we started with a fucked up situation i mean here we come to this country and get for freedom and enslave a people and start the whole country with people in bondage and then just want to like leave that behind and say well that was don't worry about that you know, well, that was a, you know, those are different times. Yeah. I, I mean, among other things, it, there's a couple of lectures by, um, Howard Zinn that I've, that I've listened to that are pretty interesting where he talks about things that we did. And he talks about, you know, the American revolution, you know, our understanding in grade schools that American revolution, everyone was on board. We had to get, you know, get rid of the red coats right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, we all fought together, but that wasn't the case. There was a major divide, you know, and that isn't really as emphasized. I feel like I remember one line about how some people still supported the British, right. but some people just didn't want to be involved at all. Yeah. And so you had people like, you know, George Washington actually pulling these young kids out of their homes, swing, giving them a gun and saying, like, you got to fight. Right. And it's just, they didn't want to fight. They didn't want to be involved at all. They don't want to, you know, die because it wasn't, you know, it's not. They didn't really have much to gain. It would have been, un, you know, although it is great that we don't have 
a king in the United States, <laughs> the it's still you know as we're seeing it's still the uh, the wealthy are the most powerful. We might as well, and, and, you know, <laughs> in some ways it's not totalitarian, but it's but representational. Uh, yeah, government is is not is not really doing its its job. No, I mean people are controlled. I mean, uh, obviously, the real revolution in america started because people had gotten their own shit going here and they no longer needed england and they didn't want to pay england for what they didn't need anymore you know and and then concurrently with that was a lot of enlightenment thinking that they sort of embraced and made part of this revolution but ultimately these guys just wanted to keep their money yeah, and they wanted to keep. They had become lords in this world, and they wanted to stay lords in this world. And they had some great writers, and some actually, tr- you know, in a lot of cases, like pretty good guys that they swept up in that, and basically got to craft the story around it. And that, and that is not to shit on the uh, story, but I think it's important to recognize that it isn't really such a glorious thing either i mean it's in a lot of ways it's a typical it's the same story that's been told many times you know uh, uh the emerging of cultures has been the, i mean uh, england and france and spain and all of these countries exist because the roman empire fell apart it couldn't control them anymore you know they had they were all roman um provinces they were all part of the empire of rome london was londinium you know, they owned all that shit and then, then they couldn't control it all anymore. And it all, they all, all of these different places became their own countries. And in a lot of cases it was like, remember who I was talking about this. Maybe it was you that it was like the, the wildlings, you know, the people who were just kind of running loose, the, the tribal people that they had been keeping at the gates kind of moved into this infrastructure and just sort of started inhabiting it without the, all that had taken that had, you know, gone along with creating it, the sort of thousands of years of culture and, and innovation and civilization, whatever that built this empire. They didn't have that. They were, um, they were stone age people in a lot of ways that just kind of got to take over because the Romans were gone. You know, are you, make any sense? <laughs> I don't I'm know if I'm following you because I think I, it, it's a fine tangent. I don't, I don't think I was in on that conversation, the original conversation. I don't think that was me that you were talking to. So I think that's where the disconnect for me is. Like the dark ages were basically after the Roman empire fell and the people who were running the countries or, or, you know, just in power in the various places were warlords and chieftains essentially that they got to rise to power because there was no longer a central government from Rome running things. Oh, right. That makes sense. Yep. And that they obviously didn't appreciate what they had inherited there in the way of writing and arts and culture, and it was only in the monasteries that it was preserved then. You know, so the the people who they had power and they had um they had some buildings and they had some roads and they had all this stuff, but they didn't have the culture that went with it. So you had dark ages for a while, and then there was a renaissance where the sort of culture that went with all of that stuff reemerged. Yeah, yeah it's it's kind of interesting too how sometimes when that happens when an empire falls or begins to fall that the uh which is unfortunate you see the oppositional forces sometimes even destroying what was built by them 
Mm-hmm. And uh, from a historical sense, that becomes pretty pretty sad for the human race sometimes when you think about some of the some of the libraries that were burnt to the ground yeah. because they weren't the correct ideological library and then you lose all these texts that could have contributed you know we don't have to 100 percent believe you know it's not it's not like some of the philosophy of people that were worshiping the sun you know might have might have had some information that we could have used today mm. but you know, and it's not like we're going to start worshiping the sun by reading their texts, but they might have had something in there that applied that was that was interesting or per- perhaps beneficial to us. Yeah, that seems to be, I guess, what the theme is in my head is so often the one is drawn to a movement and a way of thinking to be liberated. But then when when one encounters the potential for just how much liberation is available that's frightening and you end up you start actually closing the aperture you just leave one uniform for another uniform and that's you know i've seen that in a in a contemporary way with somebody who might be raised by very conservative sort of yuppie parents and then they decide they're going to be a goth and or punk rock or whatever and they go from wearing one uniform which is their parents how their parents dressed them to fit into the culture that they lived in as yuppies to dressing to fit into another one, you know, and to become completely ideologically fixed because there's so much fear and like, oh, there isn't any one simple set of answers. There isn't really any one way to be. So rather than to really go, now I've been liberated from my initial indoctrination and say, I I will no longer accept any other indoctrination. Most people just pick another indoctrination and just stay there. You know, that's actually something kind of interesting that you bring up because I, I've, I definitely feel like throughout, uh, the information that I've read historically, you see things, people reacting back and forth, back and forth to extremes in their belief systems and everything is slowly progressing. But for, for example, you have a very politicized, um, populace in the 70s and then you have or in the early 70s you know late 60s and then you have this disco era where you have this decadence and then you have punk in the 80s early 80s late 80s responding to that yeah you know and it's and it's this back and forth where you know we're we're consumers we're polit- politicos we're consumers we're politicos and it's unfortunate that we can't just find this in between where we're not so angry and against everything that we make bad decisions, but we're also not a hundred percent, you know, decadent that we fail to recognize what we're doing to harm other people through that decadence. And like you mentioned earlier, through that, like strive to, to please yourself and to, to satisfy your own desires, you know, that are unsatisfiable because you always want more. Yeah. And, there's the, the they're all different kinds of desires and and there's there's the di- desires that are really based on i think animal um appetites which i think are as um as much a natural part of the human animal as a, the desire for the truth you know the desire for meaning the desire for what's it all about the the desire for to be in touch with whatever it is 
whether or not you believe in any kind of God, in you is a a category of thinking and feeling that relates to that. You're born with a sense around like uh, some kind of transcendence and some idea that there's an author or that there's some idea that there is um, a mystery. You know, I don't think anybody, I don't care how simple they appear to be or how, for lack of a better word, dumb they appear to be, they do not possess that mechanism in their head for contemplating something greater than what's right in front of them. You know, and, and very, you know, people put lots of things in that, in that mechanism, you know, or apply that mechanism to a lot of things. But I think everybody has it. And that's, I find it really hard to believe that anybody is an atheist, you know, because you might be against someone else's definition of that stuff, but I don't think you're against your own box that asks to be filled by, you know, applying that to something. Yeah, I guess. But I mean, for me, I I consider myself an atheist. But but what does that mean? Like, I mean, for, that's... for me, the way I define it is I don't believe in a deity. Like, right. I don't believe in something that created everything. And I'm completely comfortable with not knowing, you know, what our origin was. You know, I won't. I'm I'm interested in it, and I'm in the sense that I'm interested in the scientific pursuits of figuring out stuff and understanding how, but. Um, why isn't something that I'm super concerned about? I do find an interest in humanity. I do find an interest and in see myself, you know, as part of that bigger picture. There's a story my father told me by an Iranian poet, which I wish I remembered the name of the poet, but he talked about, um, uh, what truly living is. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how truly living is knowing that several years after your death, there's going to be a student or person somewhere up late at night reading your poetry mm-hmm. after you've passed. Right. And uh, that you've contributed to the progression of of uh, humanity socially and, you know, intellectually. And that that's, I guess, where I see m- my calling, which I'm not, I'm not as prolific as that person, but, mm-hmm. you know, if I can contribute to somebody or to a handful of people and shape their minds a little bit that might shape other people's minds. See, and minds, I would, I would you know? say that that's your category, that's the way that you apply that, that yeah, mechanism. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. You know? I, agree, I agree with that, but I'm not... And I so, what I usually think people mean by being atheist is kind of like what people mean when they say they're punk rock, you know, or they're a rebel or whatever, is that they're against somebody's concept of God. And by... And I, I don't, like... I don't have one that I'm into or anything like that. Yeah. This, I'm not speaking as, as a, a, a devout anything. What I'm, I'm speaking to is I've seen um, anti or atheistic arguments appear a lot, and they remind me of the counter-cultural movements that exist that are totally dependent upon the culture they're countering to exist. Right. Yeah. You know? It's a, it's a response versus like, this is what I believe. And right. That, and that's where I feel like, yeah, I digress from some of those things. And that's, and I think that's where I digress a little bit from, um, some anarchists because I'm, I, I, uh, I enjoy the ideology. I enjoy some, the principles, but, um, at the same time, I'm always trying to figure out how that would actually be applied. And maybe it's just an ideal that I find to be, 
uh, beautiful and ideals are nice. It's nice to be idealistic because if not, then, you know, you don't really have, I feel like it's, there's a lack of hope in that sense, but that's just me. But well, I, and I, I agree with that a hundred percent. And for me, any yeah. kind of theism is actually a projected, um, perfected self that you'll never attain. You yeah. Know? But it's, it, it, it is totally dependent on your inner, life i mean nobody else can give you they can call you they can show you a picture or something like that but what you do with that information what you ultimately form in that is a a theist you know or a whatever a god or or whatever is is an avatar of you you know it's it's a um a destination or a goal or something it's a place that you house your better values yeah that's why people say to be christ-like right you know Mm mm-hmm yeah, and that isn't that you can take a bunch of water and make it into wine. Yeah. It's that <laughs> you're striving for what you perceive to be that level of morality and the way that you treat your fellow your fellow person. Mm-hmm. And, but for me, I, I mean, I still ask some questions because it seems like, you know, with with the, con- the principles of anarchism, they, the successful s- systems I've seen tend to be smaller. You know, it's not running an entire country. It's usually like a smaller... Right. Uh, you know, tribal in quotation marks kind of system or community, like a small community. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a group, a group of workers at a factory, you know, like the anarcho syndicalists. So my question, you know, that's always in the back of my mind is that's great, but you know, it takes a lot of, it takes a strong system in place to create things like cat scan machines. Yeah. And those are important things, right? you know, <laughs> and you're not going to, you know, me, us as a community, I don't care how, you know, well, even not something as highfalutin as a cat scan yeah. machine, a goddamn road that you can walk or drive on that doesn't turn into mud when it rains, you know, that you can, you can get around. I mean, that, that takes a lot of organization and engineering and work to pave and to do all that. And we might say that, oh, well, it's a shame that that ever had to happen to the planet Earth. But, um, the alternative, you know, it, it, it sucks. <laughs> like, you know, you can't function the way that you would like to function. But anyway, you were, and I wanted to ask you, you know, we still haven't def- defined what is anarchy. I mean, is it, I want to do, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And I'm not hurting you. So don't hurt me. No, not, not chaotic like that. It's, it's for me, it's more, more along the lines of not having uh decentralized power. So not having, uh, a person with uh, the kind of leadership that we see today, you know, so mm-hmm. you wouldn't it wouldn't be similar to what our you know republic would be like where you have a representative. They go. You don't really have much input whatsoever in the decisions that they make. And then they create laws that we have to abide by um, or president who's who's uh, supposed to be representing us, but it's really representing them themselves. And the idea is that the more that you centralize power, the more people will be corrupted by it. Well, not just that, but they mm-hmm. also the, the less representative the po- represented the populace is, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and that's and that's problematic. So ideally, the more dis- decentralized, the more, you know, in some ways directly democratic the system is, the the more it will reflect the will of the people or the community and and that sort of thing, and that's that's kind of where I see it on a on a very general basis, but then within that, you know, you have so many people where they have different focuses. There's anarcho-communists, there's eco-anarchists, there's, you know, like I said, anarcho-syndicalists, and there's so many different hyphenated versions right. uh, of that, of 
of that belief system and where people feel like they fit in it. Like we said, those are, you know, those are the sex, the sex, so to speak, of right. Hinduism. It's, you know, the, while you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, I, I am, I have been affiliated and, and for lack of a better word, belonged to, uh, AA with varying levels of commitment. I mean, I've been committed to sobriety, but I haven't, uh, I haven't been, I have had different levels of service to the actual organization and different levels of involvement uh, to the so-called organization over the years. Like early on, I would be at several meetings a week doing things like leading the meeting, making coffee, doing all of this stuff. And at this point, I mean, I show up at, at maybe one a week. And the way that that's structured is that the ideals lead, not the people and that there are no leaders. There are no people who are ever the mouthpiece for any length of time. Like it's kind of like the way that a democratic system is supposed to be. Somebody holds an office for say 12 weeks and then, then they're done and somebody else holds the office and, uh, nobody gets to make any decisions or do anything without a group, you know, kind of vote about it. Um, but ultimately all of the decisions are, are made really based on are we just sticking to the ideals you know are we are, are we taking this in any direction that has got no business because it's really just about one thing it's just you know it and it and it turns out it turns out to be this very cohesive and powerful thing even though there is the same things exist all the time that there are people who are like there's too much god in this you know there's not enough god in this yeah. uh you know we we should do this with that we should do that but ultimately the fact that there is no consolidation of power never lets any of that stuff happen because, it, you know, everyone ultimately believes in the principles behind it, which are service, you know, and humility and things like that. So ultimately that it's a, it is kind of a chaotic system because it's dealing with people who are generally narcissistic and extremely egotistical and power hungry or they're addicts. You know, they want more, more of anything you can give them. So the whole system is set up to acknowledge that and to keep them from getting anything to hold on to, to get corrupted by, yeah. you know. And although, you know, this is a, this is a society that is, you know, addressing a type of person that has expressed extremes, these are still extremes of human behavior. It's not, they're not alien behaviors. They're just extremes of regular human behavior. Yeah. So I could kind of see that, um, that that could almost be a model for, you know, what it's anarchy really, you know, but you ultimately have to believe in something, you know, you have, and, and not even a dogma or an ideology, but, um, a basic idea that what's good for the group is good for me. Right. You know, I think, and that's ultimately, I think that is what is really being said by communism and socialism. Um, that the problems we have in capitalism and, and, and prior to capitalism, really, um, any organization involving an alpha male and then everybody else is that it's always been about one personality. You know, it's always winds up being about one personality, whether it's a king or a general or a whatever. Um, especially in the West, it winds up being about one powerful personality, but maybe everywhere. And we had to just basically remove the opportunity for anyone to be that person. Like nobody gets to be that. And then they won't be driven insane by being that person. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, that's the way it seems to be right now. I mean, I never thought of it that way before. I always thought, well, this is just a bad person. 
and they happened to get to this place and then they did they expressed their badness with their undue influence of having gotten to where they got but yeah, I think the reason we like these stories like Breaking Bad and all of this stu- stuff so much is that they probably weren't such a bad person to begin with. That they were actually sickened and made bad by the game of acquiring power. Yeah, and you sometimes, I feel like that's why some of these people that, these uh, political leaders that people look the most up to are ones that end up uh, getting assassinated or killed or something of that sort before they attain that level of power. Um I mean, f- to my knowledge, I really like like some of the things that Michael Collins did. I really like the uh, Zapatista movement's uh, model, which is really interesting because Zapata, who was, you know, essentially put in a position where he was he was leading, but he he didn't really want to be in that position. He's reluctant, and I think sometimes you see that those those type of people. Of course, the people that should be <laughs> sometimes in those positions, not in a leadership role of in like I'm the authority and I'm doing things, but maybe as in a leadership role as in like inspirational kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's those reluctant ones that uh, I guess the establishment needs to look at look out for <laughs> the ones who are reluctant to have power to attain power. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and I like what you just said because that's what. To me, ultimately, the person that I want to be a president, I'd like them to be a symbol of what I aspire to. And I, and, and I think that, that ultimately the leader is that. Like, he, he doesn't actually have that much power. He has what we project onto him, you know, or her. And the better president is one that would, makes a good sort of brand image <laughs> for the country, you know, is representative of what we really think are our principles and where we're, trying to go i never thought barack obama was going to be a good executive yeah you know i just thought he represented the country better you know and he represented the people in the country better and he represented uh what we're trying to become and how we fit in internationally you know it acknowledges our identity better and also is that story of a guy from humble beginnings who can be president which we all want that that freedom of accomplishment, even if it's not economic rise, it's that we can just change our state, you know. But um, what what does become problematic, and with his situation too, is when you're in that leadership position, you still have, if if they're listening to the people, it becomes the desires of who's shouting the loudest. And um, I've I definitely throughout his presidency have seen have, throughout his presidency have seen him, you know, responding to pandering. Mm-hmm. Put to in neg- going in negative directions because it's whoever's shouting the loudest at him or whoever's the most control, you know, whether it be through capital or through political power. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of things unfortunate that this administrative in- administration has done. Yeah, I mean they, uh, I mean they, I think to some degree have been corrupted. Yeah, a little by by being in this position and um, you it, know it's, it's you know the people like. Whether we're talking about like the historical figure that we imagine that that guy Jesus was, which is basically just a probably a revolutionary, a guy kind of like a Martin Luther King who's going around saying, you know, we if we all, you know, kind of work together and accept each other and forgiving and loving towards each other, we can accomplish more. You know, we can we can maybe throw off the, the oppression 
that we were living yeah, under. Yeah. Or maybe it was like a Monty Python's Life of Brian. Right, right. <laughs> some guy that people are just projecting <laughs> belief systems to. And he was just some guy who's like, you know, you guys, what are you doing? Be nice to each other. And they're like, oh, you know, this is <laughs> yeah, divine information. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just galvanized a... <laughs> yeah. um, Somebody just ended up being the uh, the receptacle for all of that stuff that everybody wanted, and yet you know you you know you laugh at that like it's a it's a joke, but I think it's also the truth, you know, of how these things go down. Like, and that's to me actually, I mean, and I think it's funny also, and I I think there is a great co- that humor is better than drama and tragedy at at seeing what is ultimately I think um, something absurd and playful about how things come together you know and how um that that's that's really the spirit of what that i'd like to get in touch with as far as organizing and affecting change is that things are not fucking dour and they're not fucking tragic and horrible and atrocious and all of these things they're just fucking human and they're extremes of human behavior you know um and that's not and that doesn't mean that they don't have to be resisted and stopped with the same effort that that an atrocity would but to say we need to actually see we are all capable of this on some level this is that the things that are fucked up are things that people do on all kinds of different levels and to get really really righteous about stopping something and putting a whole lot of energy into being righteous is not constructive it's more to just say Look how pathetically human that particular person is being. How, how or, or group of people have have become. Like, look how lost and misguided and shitty they've become. We really need to create a much more positive beacon to pull, you know, the people who are following that and and those people in another direction. Something attractive, you know, laughter is far more attractive than preaching. You know, joy is more attractive than, you know, um, sadness and wailing and um lamenting you know to make it look fun to get you know yeah that was a uh i want to say so abby hoffman that was part of his philosophy and some of his political actions you know is to make you know if you can oh actually that's not who i'm thinking of uh, i wish i could remember this uh big figure in the uh in the early 70s but their part of their philosophy was if you can laugh at the establishment and by playing and they play jokes and they set up skits and these types Pranks. of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you could if you can laugh at the establishment, you're taking the power away from them. If we continue to tell them that they're hurting us and that they're these right. awful figures, it kind of gives them power by saying that you have power they're over feeding us. their sadistic strength. Exactly. Streak. Yeah. Exactly. So mm. but it is, it's an yeah, it's like crying, like you know, the getting the satisfaction uh, that some some kind of sick kid would get out of like making a dog yelp or or you know causing a cat to howl in pain or whatever. You know, it's yes, yeah, howling in pain gives them the satisfaction. Like in, instead to sing or to you know to laugh, you know, to undermine that whole dichotomy or that paradigm. And it's it we come back to comedy. You know, that was like one of the first things that we talked about. And I, I honestly used to really think of comedy as, as pretty useless, just a form of lowbrow entertainment. And I see it as this far more powerful thing now, you know, that, that there's this level of 
of vulnerability. I mean, like, and, and like you look at the dichotomy between, say, Batman and the Joker. No matter what the Batman does to the Joker, he's not going to stop laughing. You know, <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and in his case, it's he's a psychopath, so he is not speaking the same language at all. Like, what motivates Batman? The idea of order and retribution and right and wrong and all that shit completely irrelevant to this guy and no matter how much he exerts that will on this guy it's not going to have any effect on him because he is he doesn't fit in that category he's out of the paradigm he's totally in his own paradigm you know and that's basically treated as insane like you have to be insane to operate there and that is a type of anarchy i guess and uh, a type of chaos but in some respects it's a positive model like we are always dependent upon reacting to the existing paradigm you know whether that you know like not having the opportunity to enjoy spirituality because we don't like the way organized religion looks you don't like the way people who are in the organized religion act we don't like the things that are perpetrated by the you know the leaders of the various churches and all of that kind of stuff so then we say none of it's any good there's no room for me to basically allow for something that lies outside of my intellectual understanding, outside of my synthetic knowledge, to just say there's a there's something that cannot be defined that is giving meaning to this world and not and, and giving purpose to this world and, and has its own purpose. Like without ideology, the cells in my body are dividing. You know? Without ideology, you know, the spermatozoa for my dad's for my dad hit the uh, egg for my mother and the you know the genetic material drilled in here and started exchanging chromosomes and then the cell divide cell divide cell divide that shit is an agenda you know it it has some mission it has a some purpose and it doesn't fit into the intellectual ego yeah it has thinking. no consequence but it's believe. running you know it's going and it's been going before we started naming it you know what do you? How to use the restroom? Oh, <laughs> you don't have to turn off the mic for that. We can just take. Oh, we're in our. Okay, so um, Bizan, is that the right Bijan. one? Bijan. Bijan. <laughs> Sorry, has just gotten up to go to the bathroom, and uh, I think we're trying to figure out how we're going to wrap this up because it's it's definitely uh, we're almost at we're at an hour and forty seven minutes, and this conversation has really taken on a life that I wasn't expecting and i don't even know i feel like you know, anytime you set me down with somebody i end up talking about politics and religion <laughs> it doesn't matter yeah <laughs> what it is which is like supposed to be the two worst things to right. have discussions about but it's just i mean they fascinate me those two things really fascinate me yeah me too and like i really want to get i mean i was just talking when we started off that i want to be able to talk about this stuff uh without getting too wound up or too passionate or um, emotional about it, you know, and certainly not to be acting from I'm being threatened by whatever it is that the person I'm talking to thinks or believes. And, and then I could just be detached, you know, in the sense that like, this is what makes sense to me, but it doesn't have to be this way. I mean, I'm not omniscient. I don't really know what's right, but these are, as I go and experience the world, these are the things that make sense to me. Um, but I get like, I find myself getting like, I'm tired and a little strung out today. And I, and like, as we're talking about these, that's, that feeling is sort of infusing, like how we've been talking about 
some of this stuff and my inability to kind of bring it all together because my brain is <laughs> you're tired it's, fried, it's the yeah. end of the week <laughs> i haven't had a good eight hours of sleep uh all week and i don't i don't remember oh, the geez. last time i did but I, I i i didn't realize when you were sitting down i mean of course we don't really need to talk about your art and your comic books i think it's interesting to talk have you talk as a person and then a person go who the fuck is this guy and then go find your comics and find your art um but i had no i didn't know sitting down you when you coming over here that you were sort of anarchist and you know on that side of things um or atheist uh and that's really exciting i mean it's cool that you know that was brought in because i'm sort of i'm not those things i don't know exactly what i am but um i'm really i really find that the the openness to something beyond logic needs to exist for logic to have a purpose for it to work to the openness to we don't know everything you know and and not just the things that we discover through the scientific method but um we really don't know and we don't need to know and we don't need to see our human knowledge as being the um the whole picture you know laying that laying those grids on all of on everything yeah I think it makes you more creative to entertain other possibilities. Yeah. Well, you're. Tr- I think that just like with science, you know, it's about trying to figure out stuff. And for for me, art. I don't know. I don't. I always have trouble when I talk about art because there's the way that it feels is it feels like I always have to produce something. Like I have trouble standing still. I have trouble not doing something or fi- trying to figure it out or design it or to better structure it, whether it's walking to my job at work and I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, I'm at a uh, intersection. And I'm thinking, well, if, you know, the light turns red, then I'm going to turn left and then this will change my, the, the, the way I'm going to structure my day and I'm going to take this different street and to, to make the, it the most efficient way possible to get to my destination. You know, there's still something creative happening there. There's still something organic. Right. It just doesn't end, but it's, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it's truth that I'm seeking in a similar way that, you know, Van Gogh was who I, who I, we, we brought, up, brought the beginning. up the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he was, he was definitely trying to, you know, at least from what I know from what I've read is that it's through his work to understand his immediate environment. And I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to get better as an artist. I keep working, you know, hard and studying, um, different artists and what they've learned in the past to try to get better. There's, there's to some extent, there is what we mentioned, the ego that it is feeding, you know, it feels really good to produce something and to share it with my with my colleagues, my fellow cartoonists, fellow comic book artists, as well as my uh, immediate friends and for them to say, hey, that's cool or post it on, you know, Facebook or Instagram and they heart it or like it. And, you know, to some degree that fuels my interest in keeping producing things. But also my self-criticism and saying, you know, looking at it after I posted and somebody liked it and I'm like, oh, I wish they didn't see that. There's something wrong with this element and there's something I don't like about that. And then you do the next you know, drawing or the next comic and you try to make it better and try to learn from your mistakes and, and grow. And I don't know, I guess that's, that's part of what fuels me is the growth, the personal growth, Mm -hmm. the personal to continue, continue to see progress, you know, every panel, every page, every drawing. 
um, which is one thing I really love about, uh, I believe that I'm going to, some people who love cartoons are going to hate me for perhaps saying his name incorrectly, but I believe it's Walt Stanchfield. He wrote a book about uh, gesture. He taught a lot of the Disney cartoonists uh, gesture drawing, you know, as if it was a class. And there's this uh, statement that's... Is this how to draw a character that is making a gesture or is it a to draw on a style that is like a gesture so it's gesture drawings are used to are exercises to help people get better at drawing so when you see somebody standing or walking or or doing doing anything essentially you try it's a quick sketch of that action where you try to encompass it as best you can and then that will inform for animators that'll inform their animation for and it's applicable to comic book artists because it informs to make the way that people's movement are and their mm-hmm. be their mannerisms whether it's a hand gesture or um or running that you get that as accurate and as You're natural trying to looking. catch the orchestrated moment of movement yeah the essence of to it to get the essence of it not the details right and mm-hmm. so um he he talks about how instead of seeing each each drawing as an isolated system that each drawing is just a step for the next drawing mm-hmm. and our, I feel like for uh, all artists should really take that to heart you yeah. know I know a lot of people who are phenomenal musicians but don't want to get up on stage because they haven't performed on stage a lot and they haven't you know the more that you perform the less important each individual performance is right because it's just you getting better you know each time it's no longer consequential and I used to actually do a a decent amount of graffiti and it was the same thing you know each uh mark that you made when i first started everything was so important and you know your hands are shaking and you're nervous and it has to be perfect and the more that you do it and the more that you have under your belt the less important each one and the better chance you actually have of executing it well (laughs) yeah exactly yeah and i I had the experience of trying to of playing in bands for a while and i and i that's what i was thinking about that the first show i played i stood completely still and tried really hard to play these songs exactly like i thought they were supposed to be played and these were just dumb rock songs which is like all bar chords and shit Uh, rock songs aren't dumb but (laughs) the thing is there's not a whole lot of real um finesse involved in in doing what i i mean there is but in it's, a, it's it, not classical guitar right you know, i'm it's not, not s- flamingo <laughs> right but the, what i learned then was that practice when you're not on stage doesn't count i mean it, like it basically um really if you can just play if you can just play with your band a lot and play a lot of shows then you really get into the sort of trained second nature Gnostic space that you need to be in to perform well, you know, like, because if you really need it to be controlled, you're the kind of guy that's sitting in, in a room with a metronome and you just keep going over these scales and keep going over these pieces and just trying to perfect it. You become completely dependent upon that ev- environment to achieve that. You know, you like, you need it quiet. You need it to be lit like this. You need, you know, to feel safe and all of this other shit that is not uh, 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 an environment that you can expect most of the time if you are performing. And you're very rarely in control of any of hardly any of the variables except that you might have brought you brought your own guitar and your own amp, you know, and you've got. But the more that you get used to dealing with all of those variables and get comfortable with them, you actually become a better player because you're not you're not looking at it as a science. You're looking at it as uh, language and you're feeling confident to speak that language 
You exactly. Know? And that's true of everything. You know, I yeah. also, I trained uh, Muay Thai kickboxing for a, for a long time. I just started again and it's great. I love, I love kickboxing. Um, but it, uh, when I first started sparring, it was really intense and I was really stiff. And for that reason, my form, which I feel like, you know, boxing is very much like a, a dance and mm-hmm. or music, you know, there's mm-hmm. a rhythm to it. Um, but it's more of a call and response, more improv if you were going to use a good analogy, but it's, um, boxing is the jam band of no, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but the, the thing is, the point is that I was, uh, I was stiff when I first started sparring because every time I box somebody, if I started getting tagged, we're not knocking each other's blocks off. We're being right, right. very respectful of each other. And it's more about understanding how to get better at the craft because you're interacting with a human being with variables, like you said, with performance, mm-hmm. but, Anytime I got hit, it was just like the most devastating experience. It was like, oh my God, I right. messed up somehow. But then, uh, the more that I did it, the less of a, less consequential it became. It was, you know, oh, so what? You know, you're going to get hit. It's boxing. That's just, that's the nature of the sport. Right. Right. <laughs> and you I have to better. be able to embrace that and not see it as, uh, because that's really the ego is telling you that you failed, you know, in that moment and you being a perfectionist can't accept that anything other than success and other and perfection resulted. And that's actually a really, um, constipated way to look at things, to be able to roll with the punches, to be, I mean, and, and Bruce Lee, I guess, and, and this is a completely different discipline, I guess, right? He's coming out of Kung Fu. It's right? a, or is it a, he does a Chinese boxing. Okay. Um, I for, I think, I think it's Wang Chung. I could be. Oh, really? Could but, be but he came up with Dao Ji. Kung or, or something like that. It was the way of the intercepting fist. And his whole philosophy was that people are, are, are always stuck in these fixed stances and they need to be able to move, to be fluid, to be anticipating. Um, and this led, you know, was a whole, um, sort of Taoist, I guess, kind of philosophy for him. And I don't know if that informed it or what. I don't know enough about him, but that resonated with me just because I saw the movie with Jason Lee. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't even like a big, but but that, that idea, the comfort and failure and, 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 you know, and that you're not, you don't like, that's humility, right? Like you don't have to be perfect, but you're also not the worst. You're perfectly right where you belong as a pilgrim in whatever discipline you're, um, endeavoring to, for lack of a better word, master. See, I don't like get better, or perfect, I like get more comfortable so you can get freer and more and more what's coming from you is creative and not fear-based, you know, that you're flowing, you know, and you're really just letting shit flow through you. You're not limited by what you're afraid of, you know, that, that, and that's so much of art and anything like, uh, that people are, are, they're editing themselves. They're already telling themselves they suck before they let anybody see anything because they can't even, they, they can't let go and, and face that fear and then ultimately remove that fear from the process, which I think is the whole purpose of like really doing, um, putting it out there, you know, is to make you better. I mean, to get you freer and doing it. Yeah. And to overcome your, place. overcoming your fears is a big part of that, right? Yeah. You know, the most innovation are the people that take that, take that leap, not knowing if they're going to land, you know, and, I, I definitely find that to be true. You know, my work, when I, when I start to, when I stop thinking so much about every mark that I make is, 
I feel like is when it tends to be the most interesting, the most engaging. Yeah, and and this brings back uh, to a thing that occurred to me is that as an analyzer and emphasis on anal, because I really came into this world as a pretty like in a lot of ways uptight, fearful uh, person, and and I really liked, I wanted to know so that I could control. You know, and I wanted to be able to categorize and I wanted to be able to figure out and I wanted to box things so that somehow I could predict what's going to happen and, and somehow I could, you know, keep things that I'm afraid of from happening and things that threaten my comfort or whatever. Um, and more and more I, I move towards, I don't want to know and control, like I want to be able to just experience what's going on. Like, and I'm not there yet, but I see that as a goal and I liken it. This occurred to me while you were talking to be able to taste something and not need to know how it was made or what the ingredients are, but just say, wow, this is delicious. You know, this, this, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and to go back with music, it's like similar to when, uh, you know, especially think about being in high school and you're worried about that cool factor. Yeah. And there's some musicians that, you know, now with, uh, as, I feel like, you know, having a family and still striving to do my work, I, I'm somewhat of a hermit. And there'd be bands that I'm interested in. I think, oh, yeah, I was listening to this band the other day and they were kind of cool. And, you know, people would be like, oh, you like that band? You know, and, and I lose that high school factor because, you know, where I'm worried about people judging me for what right. I listen to because, you know, I'm just listening to the random thing that Pandora or whatever music streaming thing I'm listening to is, is doing. And, uh, and interested to do it. And I feel like that happened to me with Raging Against the Machine. You know, I thought that was, oh, everybody likes this band when I was in high school. And it's really against Raging. I was raging against Rage Against the Machine. right? <laughs> and uh, and then later on, when I got to college, I was like, oh, this band really is awesome. Like they have some really great things, especially that was the point where I was becoming more and more politically um, motivated. And it's funny how that works your self-censorship your your unwillingness to experience new things because you're worried about what people think yeah and there's a a book that somebody sent me called the artist's way my aunt sent it to me and it's it's actually a series of practices to get yourself out of that self-editing thing to just flow like you're just supposed to do the shit and kill the editor you know just like because that editor isn't even an external that's you you know (laughs) that 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 isn't happening outside of you. That's all internal. All of that, you know, that's clenched sphincter, you know. <laughs> and now, you know, I, and I, I got on board with that, like music and art and all of this stuff is supposed to, uh, somehow there's some, like, uh, essential canon or, um, I, I can't think of the word right now, literati or, or illuminati of like knowing what is relevant and good art and all of that kind of stuff and could get really into arguing the point one way or the other and and that all now falls into the tasting the dish category and when i see someone who is really vehemently against some kind of music or trying to proclaim some essential thing of good or bad i'm like i feel bad for that guy man he's like he can't taste anything you know it's like he's colorblind you know and and like i don't i no longer want to engage with that person i pity them you know, for just basically limiting what they have to enjoy, you know, from the banquet. Cause there's just a shit ton actually to enjoy out there. I can hear, I've been going to basketball games with my dad at U of R and that is not 
never been my thing. Like, <laughs> you know, and the last time we went, I was like, this is really fun. You know, like all of these, this energy of this crowd and these guys and the, the way that their personalities show up as basketball players and the way they play the game and the music that the band is playing and the dancing that the cheerleaders are doing and all of this, you know, there's something really cool and exciting about this expression of humanity and energy and intensity. And it's just as valid as anything else I've ever dug, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how that works out. My wife and I, we went to the, um, to the, uh, state fair and we usually don't do a a lot of the things that, you know, you would typically do to state fair, but we totally were like, all right, let's ride the mechanical bullets, get the stupid, like, old-timey photographs and we yeah. did these things and we had a blast doing them what we normally would never never uh do it. it's like oh it's a waste of money it's not you know it's cheesy our friends you know we have we're surrounded by artists our friends could take better pictures than that but i don't know it was it was it was great yeah why take yourself so seriously yeah you know? exactly why so serious yeah i mean that really is a um it's it's just a self-defeating thing you know, the, the less that I look at, look over my shoulder or at somebody else to approve of what I'm doing, the more fun I have, you know, the more I'm actually liberated to enjoy what is, you know, in the moment. And, um, I mean, there, there's so many people who have tried to express that to me through, I mean, there's that, I got a Thich Nhat Hanh book right there, um, called Living Buddha, Living Christ. And it wasn't really until I read that, that book that I understood what, um, or I saw how what Buddhists are talking about applies to my life and what I've been striving for, which shouldn't be striving. Cause it isn't. It's actually just a surrendering to how great it's it just living. <laughs> yeah. It already is. It's yeah. kind of, it's fucking amazing that we exist, you know, not to sound like, you know, well, I don't really care if I sound like that or not. Right. Cause that's just, <laughs> no, I mean, and not to devalidate it as a, any kind of dogma. I'm not belonging to, I'm not part of any group of people that's encouraging me to say that. I do recognize that about life, that it is miraculous. Yeah. There's a lot of things yeah. that are amazing. You know, we just take for granted. Yeah. Everything's amazing and nobody's happy. <laughs> we have freaking s- cell phones right. go and shoot a message and uh, can you give it a second yeah it's gotta go <laughs> yeah, to yeah, space exactly <laughs> that that uh that bit who was that comic that's louis said- ck oh uh, yeah it's louis ck yeah. yeah i mean it is it is jeez it's amazing that water comes into our houses <laughs> without having to go dig it up somewhere Electricity. walk to a river <laughs> yeah yeah i mean these things are all I think that's the important thing that I've come to recognize is that in order for me to be a smarmy intellectual, somebody, a shitload of people had to set up a whole bunch of shit for me to like inhabit so that I then had the freedom to devote my mind to pulling it all apart and having a problem with it all, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, in some, and that's not to, I mean, cause I love guys like Howard Zen and I love the idea of the radical. And what the radical is, isn't necessarily somebody who's out of their mind foaming at the mouth. There's somebody that they're playing a role outside of the puzzle pieces that have started to lock together. You know, the things that have started to become unquestioned movements of culture have just started to get locked into a groove. The radical comes along and says, whoa, what are you doing? You know, don't get, don't get stuck in this shape. You know, there's more to this, 
you know, in a lot of ways, it's a spiritual thing, I think, to be, to come along. I mean, it's another type of prophecy, you know, it's another type of witnessing or testifying to be a Howard Zinn or a Ralph Nader or whoever is like, there are other ways of looking at this. And it doesn't even matter if you agree with me on how I'm showing it to you. It's that you entertain other ways of looking at this, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what the purpose of prophets are. And, all of these other people is to say, we got to function in a unit and in a system, but we can't let the system defeat us. You know, we can't let the system control us. We can't let the system overtake us. We have to remain somewhat transcendent of the system, you know, to keep moving towards whatever it is that we're, I do believe there is something that, uh, that our cells want to be. There's some place they're trying to get. You know, that they, that have gotten them from amoeba to what we are now. And like, just trying to get a sense, what is that Tao? You know, what is that stream? You know, what's the current that's going on? Yeah. The, yeah. the hardest thing with that, that doubt, that Dallas analogy, I'm familiar to the stream to flow with the river and they talk about the raging waters and this Dallas master goes inside the raging waters and, uh, is left unscathed at the other side. And, um, I'm always, uh, interested, you know, the, the, I guess the dissident in me is, uh, well, how do you know when, when you're in the rapids or not, you know, <laughs> you're struggling, you know, maybe, maybe you don't know what, what directions, which way is that, is that struggle going against it or is that struggle just because you happen to be in a, in a context Almost in like which it's tantrum. difficult? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you don't know. But you practice being able to hear yourself and you practice listening to your motivations and you, you know, you cultivate an awareness of self, you know, awareness of, of your potential, your behaviors. You don't cultivate, you don't weed that shit. You don't like try to look at it and, and, you know, paste value judgments on it or any of that stuff. You just cultivate a knowledge of self, you know, the Gnostic thing and you then you can see and you can feel when you're cultivating that when what's motivating you is bullshit yeah <laughs> like, see, seeing almost like from the third person you know what am i really doing here yeah and the, i mean they refer to that in, in mindfulness practices as the observer the self that is below the ego the self that is not the um not trying to f- control and and exert order and exert itself on you know, it's gotten too big for its britches. I mean, the ego's got to be there in order for things to work. But the ego starts thinking that it's what it's all about. And there is another kind of self, the observer, the, the part of you that stands back and says, I don't want to act like that. I don't want to yeah. do that. That's I talking about I. But yet it it isn't a paradox. It's possible because there are sort of different layers of motivation and layers of awareness and Joseph Campbell calls it the wisdom of the body. You know, your body knows what to do. You don't have to tell it your heart to beat. You don't have to tell your lungs to inflate. You don't have to tell your brain to work. And that's a really paradoxical thing. You know, <laughs> yeah, you your tell brain, your brain, your brain is telling itself to work. Right. The wisdom of the body exists. It's, it's apparent as you watch your skin knit after a cut, you know, as your nails grow. Uh, as it fixes itself when you fuck it up, you know, it's, it's doing this all the time and it's not an it, it's you, 
You know, you, you are it. There is no separateness from it. But that there is a mind, I think, an awareness, a consciousness that is in line with that operation. You know, the sort of the functioning of the self, the wisdom of the body. Um, and, and often the knowledge of the ego is at odds with all of that stuff. So you do have to take a third person objective step back from your subjective ego experience every so often. And I think for you, drawing is probably that practice, you know, illustrating, creating art is your meditation in which you get yeah, in there. Definitely. That, that exercise is a, is very helpful for meditation. I love to run and just think doesn't work so much for boxing. <laughs> you have to you have to be aware of what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a little bit more, but um but yeah, running when I just zone out and you just kind of think about yourself. I love those moments when you know, we you go in and out of it where you're either self yourself absorbed or you see yourself outside yourself, outside the city, outside, you know, the planet looking down on this mm-hmm. you know, imagining yourself looking down on this tiny speck and kind of realizing how unimportant some of those problems are in your life yeah because there really isn't any separation i mean that's a fact but the way that our senses work demand that we that we buy into that story but we i mean we are at you know we are literally generically one with all of the matter and energy and the stuff of the cosmos, you know, where we do there, it is impossible for us to exist independently of it. Yeah. That, that's yeah. one thing I thought was really fascinating about, um, the, uh, I believe it's both, uh, both Russian and, um, American astronauts looking back on, you know, planet earth. And they talk about how, when you're looking at this from the outside up there and in, in space, it's hard to believe uh, as as pleasant it is to look at and as serene as it seems to think about all the strife that's actually yeah. happening down there when you're outside of it and how trivial a, a lot of that bickering is and, and how, how fragile that this bubble in the vacuum yeah is that i've heard it said that that was the beginning of the ecology movement was the astronauts observing the planet from space and us being able to see it through pictures yeah you know but it's a, uh, yeah, I'm tapped out. All right, let's just wrap it up. We're yeah. both get, we're both prone to digressing. It seems. <laughs> I liked what we were just talking about a lot, though, and you know, I mean, I'm not trying to stand up as some boot on the mountain and say these things. I, these things are are revealing themselves to me as practical as anything else. Is learning how to swing a hammer or work on a car to 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 view existence outside of these boxes that we tend to put them in and it doesn't it it doesn't actually separate me um abstractly it makes me far more effective in what appears to be the concrete world you know to to say all of this stuff that my ego comes up with is just kind of a bunch of bullshit and there's a wiser uh way for me and it's already in me you know i don't need to get taught it by somebody else. I just need to listen yeah. to it, you know. And of course for me that is that is what is to be achieved and what is to be pursued if you do choose to dig on spirituality at all. And I unfortunately most of the organized versions of it don't lead to that. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they don't they don't make that possible, or they they don't even encourage that. Uh, you know, a a mystical experience. But I consider myself. I guess I would say I'm a mystic mystical radical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that has a nice ring to it. Yeah, <laughs> it does flow together good. But uh, I I want to know more about the Sunni. I mean, the Sufi grandfather and I and your father's uh, um. And what we, what he was like, and what what aspects of that in, that he inherited, whether it was the wrestler, or the engineer, or the well, mystic. Well, my and, father was actually he wrestled. I wrestled in high school too. My father wasn't as prolific as my grandfather, but he was still really good. And he taught me when I was young, uh, younger age. Kind of one of my greatest, one of my greatest moments actually. And I know we're going longer, but um, I was in high school, and my father didn't come to a lot of my matches it was just you know we were traveling so far my father had to work but the one match that he did come to i pinned the guy in a very short amount of time i can't remember how long it was like 12 seconds or something ridiculous using a move my father taught me and <laughs> i know that made him really proud but uh my grandfather was amazing he he was such a compassionate human being i actually got a tattoo on on my arm that's uh dedicated to my grandfather in this, ex- this now, what ex- was his name um, I don't know. I always called him Bubba. <laughs> to be oh, honest, yeah. I never, we never. It was always Bubba, Bubba June, and Bubba June was was his name. That's uh, kind of a ironic, really, yeah. considering that he's the Iranian, right? Yeah, and yeah, and he's Bubba. Bubba, but you have actual Bubba. Yeah, Bubba's from, in from West, West Virginia. Virginia. That is funny. Yeah, Bubba means father. Uh, Bubba June is almost like my dearest, you know, like my dearest, uh, be, you know, beloved mm-hmm. father. But he, um. He, there was the, the experience, and he he passed away, and I got this, you know, it's a rip tattoo, which, it, you know, I know is kind of trite, but there was this situation where when I was in Iran visiting, I my grandfather had a, he had two canaries, and they would sing to each other. You keep the male and female separated. They sing to each other, and one of the canaries we found on the bottom of its cage, and everyone assumed that the canary was dead, and the canary. You know, we, my uh, grandfather took asked somebody to take the canary out of the out of the cage. At that point, I th- he had really bad arth- arthritis; he couldn't walk around too easily. So, you know, one of my cousins got the canary out of the cage, gave it to him, and that man probably sat down, rubbing the back of that bird and splashing water in its face, and you know, doing whatever he could to maybe try to revive this this creature. And that level of compassion for such a small, you know, animal that you know, perhaps isn't, you know, for most people wouldn't consider it that big in the grand scheme mm-hmm. of things. He actually revived, you know, the the canary. It was dehydrated or something. And wow. it was like magic at that age for me that this man was able to do that. And I was blown away by that level of compassion, which is why I, I asked for a canary to be tattooed on my arm as my, you know, my oh, dedication cool. to him. That's cool. Well, uh, yeah, we should definitely wrap this up. And um, uh, I... I got to look more into your art and uh, your your comics, and uh, you know, of course, we don't have to stop talking when I press. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I and, but we might have to stop tonight because uh, Morgan's trying to call me, and sure, I think sure. she's stuck somewhere. But uh, thanks for coming over, man. It's been yeah, thank it's you for inviting me. Hell yeah! There you have it. There's the rest of it. Mm, man, that was a that was a tantric one for sure. That guy, me and him can uh, can roll with some 
some freestyling, conversational freestyling. They call that shit free association. Yeah. Something like that. Well, I enjoyed that a lot. I just think Bajan is a cool guy. And um, I put a link on the um, Tantra Conversation website so you can check out his stuff. Um, he's got a website. Dig it. And uh, yeah, and dig me. Go on with my bad self. I am uh, I'm rolling with these things and getting more of them going. I'm going to keep on rolling like REO. And, uh, yeah, whether you like it or not, whether you're listening or not, we're doing it. We're keeping on, keeping on, keeping on. I'm psyched. I like my new microphones. They sound good. My mics sound nice. Check one. And, um, it's been a long day, and I don't know what else to say, but I still feel the need to fill this space with some babbling. Hey, give me some money. Come on. If you are listening, you can donate a little bit at the make a donation on the on the website and uh, leave a comment. And you know, uh, I said before you can follow me on Twitter, X Y Z M O S S, but it's basically just my Facebook posting. I don't do anything special on Twitter yet, but I still think I should have it because all the cool kids have it. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I'm gonna go downstairs and eat some chicken because I eat more chicken than any man ever seen. You know. You know what I'm saying? You know all about that euphemistically speaking. Chicken. Yeah. You can eat your dinner. Eat your pork and beans. I eat more chicken than any man ever seen. Yeah. Adios. Chao.